Good morning, Christchurch. It's a real pleasure to be able to speak to you this morning. We're carrying on the theme of a man after God's own heart. And I just wanted to recommend this book by Beth Moore. It's um, Seeking a Heart Like His. And it's, uh, it is an American woman who writes it, so you have to forgive some of it for being American and written for women. But it is an excellent devotional, and um, this is a really helpful book, which I really, really enjoyed. So just recommending that. Easy to do in sections, so you can do it with kids screaming in your face. It's a great book to, to do a devotion on. But this morning, I'm talking on 1 Samuel 19 to 26, looking at honouring others. And, you know, honour means to value someone highly and to show them respect. And in these chapters of the Bible, we see how David, a man after God's own heart, honoured King Saul. We're going to focus in on 1 Samuel 26, but I thought before we do that, we'd do a whistle-stop tour of the chapters beforehand. So in 1 Samuel 18, we're told that Saul became very jealous of David. As David's fame, conquests, and renown grew, he became more and more jealous. As David became a greater warrior than Saul, Saul's jealousy, fear, and hatred increased. As the women... Do you like my little, it's cute, isn't it? As the women sang about David, he's a great, he's killed 10,000 and Saul has only killed 1,000. And they were singing, Saul became more and more angry and his fear and anxieties continued to increase because Saul knew that God had rejected him as king and that he would be replaced. And he was starting to realise, like his son Jonathan already had, that David was going to be the next king of Israel. In 1 Samuel 19 to 25, we read how Saul tried to kill David on many, many occasions. So initially, in David's home, that David shared with Michelle, his wife, who incidentally was also Saul's daughter, was where he first tried to kill David. But David escapes out of a window. And then we get into this messy adventure of Saul chasing David to kill him. Saul chases David through valleys, through deserts, through woodlands, through towns, and through cities. Look, that's supposed to make it look bigger for you all. In the process of eluding Saul, David acquired Goliath's sword, great big sword, an army of 400 dubious men at the start, but it grew. He also acquired three new wives, clearly forgetting what it says in Deuteronomy 17, 17, that the kings of Israel should not have many wives, and he gained lots of wealth and honour. David also had to act as a madman to escape from the king of Gath. He rescued a city, protected the sheep of a fool named Nabal, which resulted in Nabal dying in dishonour, and David gaining Nabal's beautiful and intelligent wife, Abigail. And during these trials, David wrote beautiful songs all about his fears, his anxieties, and his praise and adoration of God, in, which are recorded for us in the Psalms, so we can read them as well. But Saul, in the pursuit of David, ends up prophesying naked, which is a brilliant story. He commits terrible atrocities, including killing 80 priests and neglecting to perform his duty of protecting his own people. David... 
You were wondering why the potty was there. I haven't become that incontinent. We're all right. David spares Saul life when Saul wees in a cave, which David and his men are hiding in, and David addresses Saul, asking him why he is trying to kill him when David is not trying to kill or coup Saul. At this point, Saul actually apologizes and acknowledges that David will be the next king. Saul becomes further and further away from God, trying by his own hand and power to defy God's ruling and cling on to power. Whereas David is being shaped and prepared by God for his anointed role as king and becomes closer and closer to God, learning to seek his face and guidance in what he does and honoring the very man who was trying to kill him, showing humility where many would have acted with pride and arrogance. We now arrive at 1 Samuel 26. I'm going to summarize some of it so it's not too long a reading. So basically, we get to the point where Saul has pursued David into the wilderness. Saul sets up camp for overnight. He had his, has his bodyguard, Abner, with him. And the whole of his massive army is encamped all around him. Now David sends out spies and then says, who will come to this camp full of dangerous men with me? There was a crazy warrior who eventually became one of David's 30 mighty men who's called Abishai, who says, yeah, let's go for it. Then they go to the camp and they sneak while everyone is asleep because God has put the the, uh, Israelite army into a deep sleep and they end up in Saul's tent where Saul is asleep with his spear by his head and a water jug next to him. So let's start reading from verse 8. Then said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not need to strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So they took the spear and the jar of water and went away. No man saw it or even knew it, nor did anyone awake because they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then we read that David the next day comes out and he shouts out to Abner's, Abner, Saul's bodyguard, look what I've got, haven't you betrayed the king by your actions? And Saul hears David's voice and recognizes him. And then we'll join the story again at verse 18. And David said to Saul, why does my Lord pursue after his servant for what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my Lord the king Hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. And these next verses are the verses I really am going to concentrate on. And David said, 
The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. You know, I'm going to make three really simple points this morning about how David was able to honour others, including Saul, who was actually trying to murder him. David was able to honour Saul because, firstly, he had a right view of God. Secondly, he had a right view of others. And thirdly, he had a right view of himself. Firstly, David had a right view of God, which enabled him to honour others. David knew God for who God was. He would have grown up knowing God as the great I am. And he would have heard verses like Exodus 34, which says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the Father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. David knew God was the only one who could rightly judge others. He knew God rewards those who earnestly seek him and that God himself will judge the motive of every person's heart. You can see that in 1 Samuel 26, verse 23, when David says to Saul, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. He knew that God would judge between Saul and himself. And actually, during this encounter with Saul, he declares in uh, his encounter with Saul in the cave, he actually declares to Saul, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you but my hand will not be against you. David knew that God was the one to avenge. God was the one to justify. God alone could do that. David's view of God meant he was able to leave judgment and subsequent punishment to God. You know, we're told to do the same. In Proverbs 20, verse 22, we're told to act wisely. It says, do not say, I will repay evil, but wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. And it's not just an Old Testament view. It's what we're told to do in the New Testament. In Romans 12, verse 17 to 21, we're told, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. David knew that God is sovereign. God will always bring about his plans at his time. God is the one who orchestrates all of history and our lives. During this this time, David actually wrote Psalm 57. And in it, David declares, I cry out to God, most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. David knew that he should honour those who God had placed in authority and not try to play God and orchestrate when he would become king. 
David knew God was worthy of honour and praise, whatever may be happening in his own life. David wrote several psalms during this time, including Psalm 57 and Psalm 59. And he worshipped God, knowing that God was his deliverer, that's in Psalm 59, and that God was his protector, and that's in Psalm 27. David honoured God, and he didn't try to act like he was God, but he humbled himself under God's hand, choosing to rest in the knowledge of who God is, and was able to honour Saul because he had that right view of who God is. David was also able to honour Saul because he had, secondly, a right view of others. So David had a right view of God, and he had a right view of others. He recognised Saul was still king, and therefore David was actually his subordinate, and had no right to even cut the corner of his robe. In that encounter in the cave, David actually cuts the corner off Saul's robe. His army was saying to him, just kill him. I mean, he's right here, just kill him, because they were, you know, dodgy men, and they just wanted them to kill him. But David cut the corner of his robe and knew it was wrong straight away. In 1 Samuel 26, verse 24, in the story we've just read, David says, Behold, as your life is precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. You know, everyone is made in the image of God. We're all created by God. We are his creation. And so therefore, we are worthy of honour from other people. And we should treat people with that honour. In Psalm 139, David writes, For you made my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, we're told to be the same, to honour others, to see life as precious. You know, every life is precious and should be shown the dignity and kindness and the recognition of the fact that they are made in the image of God. Whether that be a king or a poor man, it doesn't make any difference. In 1 Peter 2, verse 17, we're told, Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honour the emperor. You know, it's not easy honouring everyone. Saul was not behaving in a way which reflected the fact that he was created by God, made in the image of God, or that he was king. He was behaving in an outrageous way. But actually, we're still told to honour. That verse in 1 Peter, we're told to honour the emperor. Well, the emperor at that point was persecuting the church, committing terrible atrocities and acts of murder, and yet the church was still urged to honour the emperor. Is your boss a complete pain? If your boss is sitting in the room with you, you might not want to answer that out loud, but are they a complete pain? Well, actually, you need to show them honour. You need to respect their authority. They are placed in authority. Unless they're asking you to do something which is morally or spiritually compromising, actually, we have to respect the fact that they are placed in authority. Is your spouse, your kids, your neighbour, your sibling, your housemate driving you absolutely bonkers in this crazy time where we're all living and just seeing only the people that we live with, really? Well, actually, you need to show honour. We need to prefer them over ourselves. We need to love them as Christ has loved the church. You know, I love this verse in Romans 12, verse 10. It's basically a challenge, and it is, outdo each other in showing honour. 
You know, Christ Church, we need to be a church that outdo each other in showing honour to each other. And when people come and are part of us, they need to see that we outdo ourselves in giving honour to people. Thirdly, David was able to show honour as he had a right view of himself. So David had a right view of God, he had a right view of others, and he had a right view of himself. You know, in David's encounter with Saul, in, the, um, with, in this encounter, he refers to himself as a flea. Now, it's not false humility. David didn't then say once Saul said, yes, I can see you will be king. Well, no, I'm a flea, so I shouldn't really do that. Flea shouldn't become a king. David knew he was precious too. He knew he had been chosen by God to be the future king. David knew who he was, but he also knew his strength and bravery, his position came from who God is and from what God had blessed him with, not from his own strength and his own power. Alan Redpath, in his excellent book about David, describes David as a man under the pressure of a cloud. I think that is such a helpful way of looking at it. And I don't know about you, but there are times when you do feel like your life is just under this pressure of a cloud. Can you imagine for David the fear, the anxieties, the loneliness, the pressure of protecting and looking after and providing for all of the people who had gathered to him, which would have been many, many people. But actually, David's heart was right with God. Therefore, he was full of praise and joy and peace. Actually, we read during this time that at times where he forgot that, he lost the praise, he lost the joy, and he lost peace. But when he got his heart right before God, he had all of those things. David knew he was loved with a steadfast love. In Psalm 57, which David wrote during this time, it says, For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. In Psalm 59, David beautifully describes God as the God who shows me steadfast love. David gained strength and was able to honour from knowing that he was loved by God. You know, we are so loved by God as well. In 1 John 3, verse 1, we're told that God has lavished his love on us and we have become the children of God. Now, we say it a lot, but just think about the great love that God has shown you, that you've gone from being an enemy of God to being his beloved child, an heir with Christ. It's amazing that God would love us that much. In Romans 8, we're told that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Knowing that we are loved and being secure in the love of God really helps us to honour others. We don't feel the need to boast and to tell our own stories of our wonderful greatness or to say what we're good at all of the time to cover our insecurities. When we're secure in the love of God, we can delight in the success the position, the beauty, and the wonder of others. Because we know that we are loved just as much by God when we meet someone who we feel is our superior in in many ways, we are still loved by God exactly the same as before we didn't know them. And that means we're able to really love and honour each other. You know, David's attitude when he was under the pressure of this cloud was to wait on the Lord for salvation. 
In Psalm 40, David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. In Psalm 13, it's a whole psalm asking, how long, O Lord, and waiting for the action of God. David knew his strength, where his strength came from. He knew that his own strength was not sufficient. Actually, at times when he tried that was when he ended up having to act like a madman um, with the king of Gath when he'd forgotten to wait before the Lord. He knew he needed God's strength and help. You know, where do you go for refreshment and strength? When you're under the pressure of a cloud, where do you default to going to? Is it a glass of red wine? Is it comfort eating? Is it uh, smoking a load of fags or a joint? Is it having a good gossip with someone? Is it watching, like binge watching a TV series? Is it just getting into bed and going to sleep and hoping it will be better tomorrow? Actually, we need to learn to go to God and to wait for him to strengthen us, to pour our heart out to him and ask him to fill us with his Holy Spirit and make us strong. David also was able to honour others because he was humble. He knew where he had come from. He was a shepherd boy when he was little. He knew God had given him his victories. He knew God had graciously picked him out. I don't know about you, but I feel humility is flagged about a lot in our society, and mostly incorrectly. The people who are apparently humble, I probably wouldn't define as humble myself. So what is biblical humility? Well, if you turn with me to Philippians 2, and we'll look at verses 3 to 11, and we'll draw a definition out of there. It says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So from these verses, we can clearly see that humility is to count others more significant, more important than you, to actually consider the interests of other people, not just your own. It's based on walking obediently before God and not feeling you have a right to better treatment than Jesus had here on the earth. That's really challenging, isn't it? Because in the end, Jesus was betrayed and killed. You know, humility acknowledges that we are fallible. In 1 Samuel 24, when David cuts that robe of Saul, he's immediately struck with what he has done is wrong. It actually says, that when he cut the robe, his heart struck him. He knew he'd done something wrong, so he comes out to Saul to tell him what he has done. In Proverbs 12, verse 15, we're told, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. We need to know that we are fallible. We need to learn to apologize quickly, to accept blame, and to correct mistakes. You know, if you're listening this morning because you, um, in this pandemic, have felt that fear of knowing that actually we all die and we all know that actually if we are completely true to ourselves, we are not essentially good, 
that we are drawn to doing things that are wrong. In fact, even sometimes when we choose to do the right thing, we can't even do it. We end up doing the wrong thing. And we know, if we're completely honest, that if we were to stand before God, we would not be good enough. If you have those feelings, then don't despair. As that passage said in Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself and came to earth. Jesus, who was God and man, he came to earth as a man. He lived the perfect life. He died in your place. He rose again to make it right between you and God. You know, the first act of coming to know and love Jesus is that we humble ourselves and we accept that we are not good enough for a holy God who demands that we also live a life that was without sin. We have to accept that Jesus made the sacrifice for us. He lived the sinless life that we can't. He died on the cross out of obedience to the Father and he rose again for us. You know, we humble ourselves as Christians and choose to be obedient to God. We give our lives to Jesus. We choose to follow what God says is right and wrong. Becoming a Christian isn't an easy thing. It's actually a really hard thing. And for many people, life gets slightly more difficult when you become a Christian because you stop doing what you want to do and you start doing what God wants you to do. But for that, God gives us the most amazing gift, which is his son, so that when we stand before him in heaven, when we die, and he asks us, how can I see you as righteous? We can say, because of Jesus. And when he looks at us, that a divine exchange will happen, that Jesus has taken all of our wrongdoing on the cross, and we get all of his righteousness, everything that's right and good and perfect about Jesus. We get that. And that is the amazing gift of salvation that God offers us. You know, humility also asserts the truth. It acknowledges that God's ways are the right ways. That actually, we people are so proud, but the way to live in the truth is to follow what God says is right. And it's written here for us in the Bible. You know, God rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. David knew in this terrible time when he was a man under the pressure of a cloud, that he must humble himself under God's hand so that God could raise him up at the right time. He knew that he should honor Saul as Saul was king. He trusted that in this cloud of suffering, God was shaping him, preparing him to be, to be the king of Israel. You know, the amazing thing is, is that in this time, God shaped David into a man who was given the honor of every other king in Jerusalem being compared to him. And the savior of the world, that's Jesus, being born in his family line. So Christchurch, let's be like David. Let's show honor, even when it's hard, even when people don't deserve it. Let's be a church that try to outdo each other in showing honor. How do we do that? We do that by going to God for our strength, waiting for his salvation and rescue, worshipping God in all situations, writing songs of praise if you're good at writing songs. Even when we're in a cloud of difficulty, we need to remember and celebrate how loved we are by God. I'm just going to pray for us, and then we're going to finish there. But if you um, have, just as I was talking about coming to know and love Jesus, and it really challenged you and you sort of 
felt that real stirring in your heart, there'll be a website that will appear along the bottom. If you go onto that website, there's details of how to contact us. We would love to give you more information, to talk with you via Zoom or um, over the phone or two metres apart outside walking, that sort of thing. Um, then it would be really great for you to contact us. Don't leave it. Humble yourself and look at what Jesus has done for you. But should I just pray for us as a church? Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for the great joy of being loved by you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you humbled yourself and came to earth and died on the cross for us. You chose to leave all the glory and wonder and the perfection of heaven and come down onto this messy, dirty earth that's full of trouble. And you chose to do that because you love us. Lord Jesus, we just pray that we would be a church who's known for honouring each other, that we would be competitive and trying to outdo each other in showing honour and recognising each other for the way that you've made us, Lord. I just pray you'd be with each one of us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, help us to be light to our neighbours and our friends and to advance your kingdom, even in this strange time, to be advancing your kingdom. We pray this in your name. Amen.